what's going on. Thanks for joining me for another episode of the Veterinary Anesthesia Nerds Podcast. And today I'm super excited to have this guest on board. Um, I have been friends with him for a long time, kind of running in the same circles, emergency, critical care, anesthesia, all of that. And honestly, I'll let you guys know, he was the first person to kind of give me the heads up about the seriousness that was about to take hold in our country as far as coronavirus goes. And I really didn't take it, like, I really didn't get it sunk in until this person kind of told me, hey, this is a really big deal. So you might already know that this is not only a veterinary technician, but he also has a VTS in lab animals. He is a registered respiratory therapist and a adult critical care specialist. So, if you haven't guessed it already, please welcome to the podcast, my guest, friend, awesome technician, Noah Jones. Thanks for having me, Tasha. All right, so let's get into it. Noah, I want to talk to you about your career kind of timeline uh, and what's going on because you are one of the people who have made the switch from veterinary medicine to human medicine. Um, You're an RVT, you do have a VTS in lab animal um, and research anesthesia. But you became a registered respiratory therapist and work in uh, critical care, adult critical care. Can it tell me how you're, how this came about? Like, how did you go from veterinary to human medicine? How did you start in veterinary medicine? Can you give us the rundown? Yeah, it's uh, it's definitely um, keeps me busy. Uh, I, I started in California when we were living out there, and. Um, Started working as a, at a clinic as a veterinary assistant, mostly doing kennel stuff and uh, kind of GP stuff. Uh, the clinic that I started at also was open uh, 24 hours and received emergencies overnight. So inevitably and eventually, I started working uh, the night shift there, doing mostly emergency stuff at this clinic and fell in love with emergency veterinary medicine. Uh I then kind of moved around in kind of throughout California, working at a few different hospitals, eventually finding my way into specialty medicine. And I, I had gone to school for, uh, for biology, so I certainly had a science background, uh, especially um, North American mammals is what, is what I was really focused on. But, uh, but anyway, so I, uh, I never went to school uh, or at least a, a school, uh, AVMA school for veterinary technicians. Uh, so I got, California is one of those states that has the alternate route where, um, you know, if you have college credits in certain areas and uh, an enormous number of continuing education hours, uh, and you have a veterinarian who goes through all the skills with you and signs you off on all the skills, the same things that uh, any AVMA uh, graduate would need to go through. Uh, California will allow you to sit for the board exam to become a veteran, a registered veterinary technician. I don't know if California still does that. I know a couple of years ago they were looking to get rid of it uh, when they transitioned to the VTNE. But nevertheless, I got through and got my RVT in California and um, was working in emergency critical care and found that I really, really enjoyed working with patients in respiratory failure, especially patients that uh, required mechanical ventilation. Um, I worked at UC Davis for a little while uh, in the nursing department there, and obviously UC Davis has a really active mechanical ventilation program in their ICU, and I always loved when I would get into the ICU in there to give those talented veterinary technicians a hand. 
uh, and, uh, and enjoyed working with those patients. So I decided to go back to school to study respiratory therapy. In, in the human world, the people who manage and run mechanical ventilators in an ICU are respiratory therapists. Uh, certainly the physicians, uh, the, you know, the criticalists, the intensivists, uh, are, are dealing with ventilators, uh, as, as are the nurses and any number of other people, but really the, 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 the specialists in mechanical ventilation are the respiratory therapists. So I went to school for that here in North Carolina, not necessarily planning on trying to transition to human medicine, mostly because I wanted the knowledge of mechanical ventilation and wanted to use that in veterinary medicine because I think that we, in some ways, veterinary medicine is light years ahead of human medicine, but in some ways we are also light years behind in human medicine. So I was hoping to kind of merge my knowledge bases and, and uh, try and um, advance uh, mechanical ventilation in, uh, in veterinary patients. So I did that for a little while, working at uh, a couple clinics in the Asheville area. Uh, here in North Carolina, but inevitably, as everybody who works in specialty medicine, in veterinary medicine knows, uh, mechanical ventilation cases typically are few and far between. So I, I, I started, of course, um, uh, after I got my respiratory therapy degree, I was working some in human medicine and kind of slowly but surely transitioned from a veterinary uh, majority work life to a human majority uh, work life. And uh, I currently work full time at the uh, tertiary care facility here in town, mostly working in the emergency department and in the cardiac ICU or the medical surgical ICU. I still work in veterinary medicine, mostly in an educational capacity. Um, I also uh, was on the organizing committee for the uh, VTS and lab animal medicine. Uh, I have some experience in lab animal medicine, mostly related to uh, canine models and swine models. So really, that was the extent of my, uh, and really mostly um, with uh, the anesthesia and procedural capabilities in those models. Uh, so that was really my contribution to the organizing committee was mostly related to the research anesthesia or the research anesthetist uh, subspecialty in lab animal medicine. I was working pretty heavy in lab animal medicine, doing a ton of traveling in uh, 2017, 2018, 2019. But then, of course, when things kind of happened, winter of 2019 into 2020 with the COVID epidemic, I, I really have not been traveling much in the past year at all, which has been a bummer uh, because I really enjoy working in lab animal medicine. Um but uh, nevertheless, human medicine has certainly been keeping me busy lately and uh, still trying to uh, be very active in an educational capacity for, for veterinary medicine. I was, you know, I uh, lectured uh, remotely at IVEX this year and um, have done a couple other small uh, remote learning opportunities for clinics. And uh, I'm a Recover certified instructor. So trying to figure out how to be doing some of the uh, recover stuff. It's difficult to do right now uh, just with the just with the safety protocols that are in place as far as limiting group sizes and things like that. So 
One, I mean, definitely 100% as somebody who used to travel all over and educate, yeah. um, and especially like I had so many international trips I was looking forward to this year, that all just kind of went out the window. And, you know, I'm doing okay. Um, but it definitely is, oh, man, you just don't realize how much you, you love those conferences for seeing your colleagues and getting together and, and learning some new things and yeah. having dinner afterwards and all of just the socialization with the people that, you know, I consider family at this point, which I love. So I kind of want to talk to you about your job as a registered respiratory therapist. Like just to, are you intubating humans? Uh, yeah, we are. Uh, now, I think that may be state dependent uh, and certainly hospital dependent. But uh, as far as training goes, yes, in school, uh, we are trained to be airway, uh, airway specialists. Really, the only other person in the hospital who probably has more training uh, would be uh, the, the anesthesia department. So because obviously they're, they're intubating patients all day, every day for uh, – for elective procedures uh, and emergency procedures, um, but um, really the only time we are intubating, and my hospital does uh, does does allow um, uh, uh, respiratory therapists to intubate. Physicians can intubate, respiratory therapists can intubate, uh, and uh, CRNAs uh, CRNAs can intubate. Uh, certified registered nurse anesthetists. Uh, so those are the only three people in in the hospital who are allowed to intubate, and really. Respiratory therapists, the only time we're intubating uh, are typically emergency situations, uh, obviously uh, cardiopulmonary arrest uh, or patients that are um, failing oxygen therapy or other non-invasive therapies and are going to require intubation for mechanical ventilation for respiratory failure. So, you know, intubating a human versus intubating a cat or a dog, how different is it? Is it much more difficult? Uh, it can be, um, I've only had, um, I've only had, now I'm thinking, um, I've certainly been in some intubation scenarios that have been very difficult and ended up, uh, being catastrophic for the patient, uh, as far as for humans, as well as for, for, uh, for dogs, I don't know that I've been in a catastrophic intubation for a cat, but I've had catastrophic intubations in dogs. Usually, they're brachycephalics, where it ends up being a surgical airway, you know, because because you know you can't get them intubated or whatever. Um, but that's a lot more common in human medicine, especially in certain patients. Just like in veterinary medicine, we can look at a dog. Uh, or a cat, I guess less likely a cat. But really, when we when in veterinary medicine and we think of uh, difficult intubations or nightmare airway scenarios, you know, the immediate thing that comes to mind are brachycephalic breeds, bulldogs, uh, breeds like that. And the same thing applies in human medicine, uh, where most patients are typically relatively easy to intubate, uh, as long as you have the appropriate training and experience, of course. But uh, certainly there are some patients in human medicine that are known to be difficult airways, uh, patients that are obese or uh, have mandibular prognathia, which is where the mandible is short, uh, similar to like a brachycephalic breed. 
you can have patients that obviously have uh, cervical problems. Uh, either they d um, uh, have cervical orthopedic abnormalities to where you can't move their neck very much. Certainly trauma patients that are in like a C collar or cervical fixation collar. You know, you can't really move their neck, so that can become mm -hmm. difficult. Um, so there's certain scenarios where it's difficult in human medicine. I have, knock on wood, of course, I don't even, I almost don't even want to say it, but I've never <laughs> had a human that I could not get an endotracheal tube into personally, but I've certainly been in airway scenarios where uh, the person who I was assisting with the intubation, who was performing the intubation, could not get the patient intubated, and then we had to move on to, uh, you know, a surgical airway scenario. So that's pretty similar to veterinary medicine. Yeah. Um, so, you know, because you have made the transition from veterinary medicine to human medicine, and a lot of the message boards and the Facebook groups that we're in, you know, there are a ton of people who are also interested in making that jump from veterinary medicine to human medicine. So could you maybe talk to some of the techs out there who are considering that jump and kind of what are the pros and cons? Yeah, I mean, I think um, usually the response I see, uh, at least the majority of veterinary professionals who, you know, when the topic comes up about working with humans is most people go, ew, humans are gross. And I will 100% say humans are very gross, um, especially in an ICU scenario, as you can imagine. You know, when you have people that are laying in bed for days or weeks or months on end, um, things can get very gross very quickly. But, you know, snot is snot, whether it comes from a bulldog or a human uh, to a certain extent, and feces is feces and urine is urine, you know, but there is some strange thing that's just slightly more gross about human bodily fluids uh, versus uh, dog or cat bodily fluids. So um, you definitely need to be okay with that. And that's usually the thing I see most people uh, steering away from human medicine. It's related to that they find humans gross. But uh, but I it's very rewarding, um, you know, there's in the similar way to there's there's really no better feeling when you have a very sick cat or dog and they are completely helpless and you're able to intervene and get them back on the right path to wellness and, you know, get them discharged from the ICU and get them discharged home and then see them for a follow up two weeks later those those same good feelings of being able to help a creature apply to humans in some ways or in more ways than one, I guess I should say. So it's it's very rewarding career. The pay is uh, certainly human nurses uh, are paid much better than uh, veterinary technicians. Uh, that's a no brainer. But that also depends on on your niche and, and your experience level, I guess, you know, if you are a veterinary technician with, you know, uh, 10, 15 years experience, uh, and you're, uh, getting paid relatively well as a veterinary technician, not only are you going to have to go back to school for nursing or respiratory therapy or whatever you decide to go into, but, um, you know, then you, you're going to have to kind of work up the ladder. You're not going to, you know, you're not going to get an entry level job in a human hospital and be working with, um, you know, you know, ICU patients. It's pretty rare to get hired into an ICU straight out of school. Most most hospitals or most um, 
most opportunities to work in critical care are going to require you to have, uh, you know, s- several years of experience. Most human ICUs are requiring a bachelor's as a minimum. So that would be wow. a bachelor's degree in nursing or a bachelor's degree in respiratory therapy to work in uh, critical care. And that's just because, you know, uh, the skill level difference between an associate's trained nurse versus a bachelor's trained nurse uh, similar to a veterinary technician, the, 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 the difference between an associate's level veterinary technician versus a bachelor's level veterinary technician is really that critical thinking skill set. You know, you come out of an associate's program knowing all of the, the technical hands-on things, or at least most of them, that you're going to need to do to function as a veterinary technician or as a nurse or as a respiratory therapist. The added benefit of getting your bachelor's degree is really focused on critical thinking scenarios and being able to apply that critical thinking in a clinical scenario to make appropriate clinical decisions, which becomes so important in an ICU environment. So um, I would say if you are interested in transitioning to human medicine, uh, especially if you're wanting to work in uh, critical care uh, and obviously anesthesia, you're going to need to be going to school for at least four years, if not, uh, you know, four to eight years, if you're looking to work in human anesthesia to be a registered nurse anesthetist. And it's a, it's a long road. Um, but like I said, it's, it's rewarding. Um, you just need to be able to do it for the right reasons. I wouldn't do it for the money because if you're, if you're burnt out in veterinary medicine and you're wanting to move into human medicine to get paid better, uh, human medicine is 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 equally as demanding as veterinary medicine uh, if, if from a physical and an emotional standpoint. Um, so if you are burning out in veterinary medicine and want to move to human medicine, um, uh, I don't know that that's going to be the answer for you. Uh, I think you're better <laughs> off uh, finding uh, finding ways to um, to avoid burnout in veterinary medicine rather than looking to go to human medicine to to not burn out because um, burnout is just as common in ve- in human medicine um, as it is in veterinary medicine. Yeah, I mean, I definitely from the the friends that I know who have transitioned, you know, they kind of se- echo the same sentiments in that sometimes you sometimes you have a better schedule, um, you have better pay, but there's still that emotional drain and burnout that happens. So you got to be able to balance that. Um, I want to take a, take some time to transition now uh, because a lot of times on this podcast, we try to do case-based examples and kind of give people some information, tidbits of information that they can take back to their clinic after listening to this podcast. So some really practical stuff. And since your you know, whole specialty is uh, respiratory, critical care, ventilation, et cetera, I was hoping that maybe we could talk about some tips and tricks as far as ventilation goes for our veterinary friends. Yeah, absolutely. I know that it's a um, mechanical ventilation, um, you know, is a is something that in veterinary medicine, not, a, you know, we don't we don't really receive training on that uh, as an entry level thing in veterinary medicine, uh, certainly in in AS veterinary technology programs, you know, the mechanical ventilation training is virtually non-existent. So you get into practice as, uh, you know, an RVT and and then you're expected to kind of figure out mechanical ventilation on your own. And that can be very daunting. 
Definitely. I mean, I have a really nice ventilator at my practice and I love it. But one thing that I do hear from a lot of our newer technicians is that they're super intimidated by it. They don't want to go into the the surgery ORs that have that ventilator because it is so big and intimidating. Um, But I think once you get to know your way around it, it's so fantastic. Um, And actually, I, you know, say that I'm a lazy anesthetist all the time. And I'm like, you know, listen, if I can have this thing doing some work for me, then I'm going to take advantage of it. So let's talk about a couple of things with ventilation. I mean, we can get into mechanical ventilation specifically, but first I kind of wanted to go over with you. Recently on the Veterinary Anesthesia Nerds Instagram page, we posted a picture that had a pretty large uh, bloodhound dog. I think he was like 45 kgs. And he was intubated in this photo. And at the end of his endotracheal tube was a capnograph, a sidestream capnograph sensor. However, it was one of the like neonatal ones. So it was very, very tiny adapter at the end of this tube for this really large dog. And I kind of wanted to get a discussion going as to why that can be really problematic. Yeah, I mean, uh, so anytime we are introducing uh, instruments to a patient's airway, we're altering physiology, of course. So um, the goal should be to alter that physiology as little as possible. Yeah, our goal should be to alter the physiology as little as possible. So uh, in this specific scenario with that picture, you have this big dog who normally has, you know, uh, probably a trachea, you know, the size of my thumb, uh, if not bigger. And uh, as far as diameter, uh, and, uh, and so we're going to try and introduce an endotracheal tube that's about the size of its trachea. You know, we certainly don't want to put, a you know, a, a, an endotracheal tube that would be a cat. We don't want to put that endotracheal tube in a bloodhound's trachea and then expect that bloodhound to then move air in and out of its lungs. Uh, we, we won't be able, we, we will be altering physiology more than we should be in that case. Uh, because in order to move gas, um, there has to be a, uh, a pressure gradient. So when that animal is breathing in, it's going to drop pressure inside of its lungs. That way, gas moves from the outside of its lungs in the anesthesia machine uh, down into its lungs, and then the animal exhales back out. When you have a small endotracheal tube, the pressure difference that's required to move that same amount of gas is is much, much, much greater. So we try and avoid that by putting in as big of a tube as we can within reason, of course, not trying to injure the animal's trachea or, or larynx. So you go through all that work and selecting your endotracheal tube and you get the tube in and you're feeling really good about it because you know you're 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 doing doing right by your patient. And then you attach a capnography adapter because you're uh, an astute uh, veterinary technician and <laughs> uh, and you want to monitor waveform capnography. Uh, but what you fail to notice uh, is that the adapter you're attaching is a, is a neonatal or pediatric adapter. Typically with capnography units, there's two different sizes of adapters. There's a, quote, adult size, and then there's a, quote, neonatal pediatric size. Uh, and the neonatal pediatric size, uh, the, the, really the main difference is that the uh, gas uh, pathway through the adapter is much, much more narrow, such as to avoid in- introducing a large amount of dead space. Now, keep in mind, 
when we're talking neonatal pediatric, like the, these are very small humans that these adapters are made for. Uh, you know, most neonates that are that are uh, getting mechanically ventilated and have one of these adapters in place, they're going to be on on the realm of you know, you know, less than four kilograms. Uh, you know, a typical neonate that is born is going to be somewhere between two to three kilograms. So these are very, very small patients, usually smaller than most patients we're going to be dealing with in veterinary medicine. I mean, even a small cat that we're dealing with is going to be four or five kilos. <laughs> so um, but we do certainly see patients that are that are small and therefore we should use those small adapters. But with a bloodhound, that adapter is akin to essentially putting in a tiny endotracheal tube that's really narrow. So while you went through the trouble of putting in a big tube, now you have this tiny adapter that the dog is going to be trying to move gas through that adapter, and the dog is going to have to work so much harder to breathe through that tiny little straw of an adapter. And the dog is going to get, uh, you know, is going to have to expend more energy to move gas through that adapter assuming the dog uh, is, is in an, a, a plane of anesthesia that it can expend that energy. The other flip side of it is, is if the dog's in a surgical or, or a deep plane of anesthesia, the dog probably isn't going to be able to expend that energy and the effect will be less gas movement in and out of the dog and significant hypoventilation. Um, so, uh, so yeah, so in, in that particular photo, you know, uh, that would be very bad for that, that dog, uh, in that case, you could put the dog on a mechanical ventilator and then the dog doesn't have to work hard to move that gas through that tiny little adapter. But of course, keeping in mind, the same principle applies in order to move the same amount of gas, through that tiny little adapter, you're going to have to have radiant. So you're going to. Uh, you'll notice in order to move an appropriate tidal volume in and out of that dog with that tiny adapter, you're going to have peak pressures on your ventilator that are going to be, you know, in a scary range or in a range <laughs> that we typically are not comfortable with, with, with veterinary patients. Keeping in mind, the only reason the pressure is high is because of that tiny little adapter. If you remove that adapter, your peak pressures will go way back down or the patient will be able to move the gas on their own. 100%. I totally agree with you. Let me kind of like piggyback now on something that you just said about, you know, pressures, the pressures that we consider scary uh, for the airway in veterinary patients. Um, and I really, I just want to talk very quickly about intermittent positive pressure ventilation or when we take a side breath for our patients. Can you talk to us about kind of what pressure we should be aiming for, what we should be looking for when we are truly taking a positive pressure ventilation breath for our patients? Yeah, so um, so I'll, I'll kind of break that that into two. So um, you mentioned sigh breaths, uh, which I guess we can talk about, and then we'll talk about um, kind of standard breaths, I guess, uh, as far as pressure or volume targets. So in a sigh breath, what most people mean, or what, what the way we learn uh, when, at least when I learned anesthesia, and I'm sure the same thing is the case for you, as is the case for most of the listeners, that Every so often, once every few minutes or so, um, we want to give a, a big breath to the patient uh, and inflate the lungs up to 20 centimeters of water to give them a big breath to help prevent or get rid of atelectasis. Uh, obviously, when a patient's under anesthesia, 
and they are not breathing very deeply. And that's, you know, obviously a common effect of anesthetics, particularly inhalant anesthetics, as well as opioids and all the drugs we're giving for anesthesia uh, cause a patient to not breathe as deeply and not breathe as quickly. So what happens is, is when these patients are breathing rich oxygen gas mixtures, you know, 100% oxygen, essentially, uh, some of the little lung units in the, some of the little alveoli down in the patient's lungs uh, aren't getting much gas exchange in and out of the lungs. So you get gas that kind of sits in that alveolus and slowly but surely the oxygen gets absorbed into the blood. And then all of a sudden there's nothing left in the alveolus because you're giving that patient hundred percent oxygen. All of that oxygen in that little alveolus gets absorbed and unless you're giving a big breath to that patient, you're not going to get fresh gas back into that alveolus. So that oxygen gets into the blood and that alveolus now has nothing holding it open. And that alveolus is going to collapse. And we call that absorption atelectasis. So as the oxygen gets absorbed into the blood, that little air sac essentially collapses, causing atelectasis. And so what we're trained to do uh, as, uh, as young veterinary technicians uh, is to give those sigh breaths every so often to then reinflate those little collapsed alveoli uh, to help prevent or reduce that atelectasis. And there's, uh, I guess, two things worth considering with that is atelectasis happens very quickly on 100% oxygen with a patient under anesthesia within minutes. Uh, mm. So you'll have pretty significant atelectasis that's developing. If you give a sigh breath within a few minutes, that atelectasis that you just got rid of is, is right back in there. So you're, you're, unless you're, you're breathing relatively regularly for the patient, your sigh breaths probably aren't doing much to prevent atelectasis. It's just going to come right back. What you, uh, the, the way we prevent atelectasis is provide by providing a continuous pressure during exhalation so that those little alveoli don't collapse when the animal exhales. And that's by the application of PEEP or positive end expiratory pressure, which is a whole, which is a whole nother, uh, a whole nother podcast, I guess. Um, yeah. But uh, but um, so when we're doing these side breaths, we're probably not doing a whole lot to prevent atelectasis. Additionally, the pressure required to open those little alveoli up down on the bottoms of those patients' lungs might be more than the 20 centimeters of water we're trained to provide. Uh, recruitment maneuvers, which is essentially what we're trying to do with these sigh breaths, is we're trying to recruit or uh, open up these alveoli. The traditional way of providing a recruitment maneuver is to essentially provide 30 to 40 centimeters of water continuously wow. for 30 to 40 seconds. So wow. not this quick little breath you know, to 20 centimeters of water and then calling it good for five minutes. So uh, I, I don't know. I'm certainly not recommending people routinely provide recruitment maneuvers to patients under <laughs> anesthesia. And in fact, we they've they've determined, uh, at least in human medicine, that providing recruitment maneuvers actually uh, worsens outcomes in patients, uh, particularly in patients uh, with with lung disease. 
Uh, whereas we used to think recruitment maneuvers were great because we were getting rid of the atelectasis and improving lung function. Uh, we now know that uh, routinely providing those is actually a bad thing. So side breaths, do they work? Maybe, maybe not. Um, are they beneficial? Maybe, maybe not. Do them, don't do them, but just know that when you're doing them, you're, it's, it's more of a dogma thing. There's really not any evidence to say that doing that is better for your patient. It's just because my instructor trained me that way and their instructor trained them that way and their instructor trained them that way. And that's the way we've always done it in veterinary medicine. And so, uh, so that's the way we're going to continue doing it. It's one of those things. Okay. So here, like I was always taught that you would, you don't just give a side breath at a certain number, you know, a certain time interval. You really are giving like size if your patient is not on a mechanical ventilator, doesn't have any pulmonary disease process, and maybe they're hypoventilating or their end tidal CO2 starts to creep up. Is that kind of old school thinking now? Yeah. I mean, I think, um, we we have definitely moved away from side breaths in human medicine. They are not provided really anymore. Um, pretty much any patient under anesthesia in human medicine is going to be mechanically ventilated, unless it's a um, low risk procedure uh, and the patient does not have an endotracheal tube in. They um, in human medicine we uh, for low risk procedures they will use supraglottic airways. Uh, so instead of an airway that goes into the uh, trachea through the glottis, uh, the airway sits just above the glottis, just above the vocal folds, uh, and just uh, kind of keeps the upper airways open so that the patient can breathe uh, appropriately on their own. In veterinary medicine, we do – these are kind of like the V-gels. A V-gel is a supraglottic airway. So we do use them in veterinary medicine. Uh, you know, there's debate whether they're necessary or appropriate. And, and, uh, you know, I, I'm not really going to get into that, I guess. But yeah. <laughs> so if, um, if you have a patient who's intubated, you really could and should be mechanically ventilating them unless it's a short or low risk procedure, um, you know, like a spay or a neuter. Uh, I don't know that that patient's going to be under anesthesia long enough to really require mechanical ventilation, but certainly longer orthopedic procedures or longer abdominal procedures, certainly thoracic procedures, open chest procedures, all of those patients should be provided continuous positive pressure ventilation. Um, if you have a patient that's hypoventilating, providing side breaths every so often really isn't going to, um, isn't going to fix the problem that they're hypoventilating. You're going to, you know, give a sigh breath and, and maybe get their CO2 down. And then within a few seconds or a minute, their CO2 is going to be right back up. So, um, you know, you, you, ra rather than putting them on this roller coaster of high CO2, low CO2, high CO2, low CO2, just provide continuous positive pressure ventilation and maintain their CO2 at an appropriate level would be the better thing to do. There's yeah. also this thought that like side breaths, you know, again, you're giving this patient this big breath, um, you know, typically, you know, in the realm of, you know, 15 to 20 mils per kilo. And that that is something, again, that we've been trained in veterinary medicine to do. But um, more and more evidence is coming about, certainly in human medicine, that we should be maintaining tidal volumes under 10 mil per kilo. 
and even some evidence for veterinary patients that we should be maintaining volumes uh, less than 10 mils per kilogram. That's going to be breed dependent and procedure and, di and disease dependent, of course. But, um, but uh, in general, most, certainly most criticalists you talk to, uh, and even a, a lot of uh, veterinary anesthesiologists are going to recommend maintaining tidal volumes below 10 mils per kilogram or at most at 10 mils per kilogram uh, and uh, in order to minimize the possibility of uh, trauma to the patient's lungs. Okay. So ultimately, mechanical ventilation is a great way to go. And if you are at a practice that doesn't have a mechanical ventilator, then what's your advice to those technicians? Um, I guess it depends. I mean, if you're at a general practice and really you're, you know, you, you know, uh, at least when I was working in general practice, 90% of the procedures we're doing are quick little lumpectomies or uh, spays, neuters, uh, certainly dentals, and depending on the, the severity of the dental <laughs> yeah. disease. You know I was going to bring up the dentistries because that's those are the patients that are under anesthesia for three hours. Yeah, they, they can be under anesthesia for quite a long time. And, uh, and then that's also a relatively stimulating procedure. You're constantly messing with the patient's mouth and manipulating their head and airway. Uh, so they typically have to be maintained at a rel relatively deep plane of anesthesia. So... I would say if um, if you're doing procedures that are typically, you know, the patient's under anesthesia for, you know, 30 minutes, maybe max 60 minutes, I'd say you probably don't need to really worry about uh, investing in a mechanical ventilator. But if you are doing procedures that are longer than that, really, you know, the goal of anesthesia is to relax the animal or the patient uh and and keep them safe uh, while we're able to do whatever procedure we're trying to do. Uh, that is the goal of anesthesia, of course, uh, is to facilitate uh, you know uh, muscle relaxation and sedation so that we can do what we need to do. So certainly you can do that without a mechanical ventilator. But then the problem comes in is are you causing problems that are going to that are going to either give you uh, intraoperative complications or postoperative complications. Uh, and certainly the longer the procedure, the more likely you're going to have intraoperative and postoperative complications. I mean, that's, a, that's applicable across all spectrums of patients, whether it's dog, cat, human, doesn't matter. The longer the procedure, the more likely the complications. What you don't want is a patient who's under anesthesia for two hours, three hours, who's having to move gas through a little straw and that is tiresome uh, and uh, you're already altering the animal's physiology with drugs and now you're making them work hard to move this gas for hours on end while they're in these unnatural positions on their back where it's hard for them to use their muscles. They're not used to laying on their back or in one position or whatever the case is for that long period of time. So in those cases, while, yes, positive pressure ventilation is unnatural, it's not a normal way we move gas, our goal should be to allow the patient to rest and maintain proper lung function while the patient's under anesthesia. So that way, after anesthesia, when they're waking up, they're not starting behind the eight ball. Uh, they're tired, 
and they have impaired lung function because they've been laying in one spot and and uh, having to work hard to breathe for for three hours. So in those cases, if you're a clinic that has those types of cases, the long dentals or orthopedic procedures or whatever the case is, I would recommend that you uh, in, invest in a mechanical ventilator. You can get the the bellows style ventilators, uh, and you know, not not to pick one manufacturer over the other, but the 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 one that comes to mind or that's relatively common is uh, is the Hallowell, you know, bellows style ventilator, um, most ubiquitous veterinary ventilator for anesthesia uh, out there. Um, so something like that, you can get those for relatively cheap. I I honestly don't know a cost off the top of my head, but I would say you could probably find one used for a few hundred dollars, I'm pretty sure. And if that's not an option, or in the meantime, if you're waiting to get your ventilator or trying to convince your practice owner, you probably ought to have somebody who comes in, or maybe a cycle of people who cycle in through the OR, who spend five, 10 minutes in there at a time breathing for the patient so that the anesthetist can still be monitoring anesthesia and or assisting getting things for the surgeon, uh, while somebody's job is just to continually breathe for that patient. And essentially your hands are the mechanical ventilator. You can get tired pretty quickly with that. That's why I say, you know, maybe spending five or 10 minutes in the suite and then having somebody else come in and take over, you know, that's probably your next best option beyond that. Uh, you know, certainly the anesthetist can try and provide positive pressure ventilation when they can, but ultimately you have other things that you need to be doing as an anesthetist. You can't just be constantly ventilating a patient. So, uh, so that, that's, I guess would be my, my advice. But, um, I think the, I think historically we've thought ventilators weren't really necessary and, uh, and also cause more problems, uh, for patients than, than they're worth. But, um, I think more and more we're realizing in veterinary medicine that they're a necessary tool, uh, especially if you're having long anesthetic procedures. Oh, yeah. I mean, you know, I would say that the first couple of practices I worked at, we didn't use the ventilators, but we had a pretty thriving dentistry department and we would always have patients under anesthesia for three or four hours. And we got one of the portable Hallowell units and it really changed our practice completely. And it was pretty cost effective. So I would say that if you're in a practice that is doing these longer dentistry procedures, it's something definitely worth investing in. Um, so I don't want to take up any more of your time, Noah. I know that you have some homeschooling going on as many of us do in these, uh, these COVID times. Um, but I want to thank you so much for being a guest on the podcast and giving us so much information. Um, if you guys are interested in any, um, further information about the VTS in lab animal, I will put a link to that in our show notes. Um, and as always, thank you so much, Noah, for being such a informative guest. And we hope to have you back on the podcast soon. Thanks, Tasha. I enjoyed it. And thanks for, thanks for everything you're doing for educating the masses out there. I appreciate it. <laughs> All right. Thanks so much, nerds. We will talk to you next week. <laughs>